0: Welcome to the Active Travel Academy podcast. I'm Professor Rachel Aldred, Director of the Active Travel Academy. The podcast is back for 2023 with a new series of episodes specifically around active travel research that relates to themes of social justice, intersectionality, equity and diversity. Today, we're speaking to Matt C Smith, who is a PhD researcher at the University of Brighton. Their research focuses on trends in planning policy and practice, linking this with embodied experiences of places in and near the city. I wanted to speak to Matt after I heard them present at the Royal Geographical Society conference in 2022. Their RGS talk was fascinating to me, both in content and methodologically, with an incredible combination of methods from stakeholder interviews and policy discourse analysis to body mapping workshops. I loved the way their research was both engaged and challenged the limitations of coming up with a neat set of policy recommendations. The podcast was recorded in December in terrible weather. We'd hoped my colleague Professor Pippa Catterall could lead the interviewing, but she got snowed in and couldn't join us. It was also a memorable moment for me personally, because over about 26 hours in the city, I fell in love with Brighton and I decided to move here, despite the goals, which you can hear in the podcast. The Actors' Pub, which gets mentioned towards the end of the podcast, is one of Brighton's queer institutions and was hosting a well-attended and enormously enjoyable drag king show the night I visited.
1: very excited to be here in Brighton
0: with Matt C. Smith. Um, they're a doctoral student at the University of Brighton, and I'm here because I got very excited to hear about their research at the RGF conference. So um, Matt, I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit about that research and how you got interested in it.
2: Yeah, so I presented at the RGS in the summer just on uh, sort of presenting some of the findings from my PhD research, which is on trans and non-binary Uh, experiences of urban space in Brighton and Hove, uh, but then thinking through the kind of implications for planning uh, theory and practice. Uh, And so that was kind of just presenting a bit of the two things that I did, my two main kind of research focuses, which was firstly doing uh, analysis of how trans features within planning policy in the city of Brighton and Hove, and then looking at the experiences of trans and non-binary residents using uh creative mapping sessions uh, and that was more to kind of focus not on the kind of particularly experiences of planning as such but the lived experiences of city space and then kind of trying to think through like what does it mean to do forms of inclusion and how that changes depending like what questions you ask and where you start
1: Yeah, it's such a great combination of those two things. I mean, you've got the planning and you've got the I'm really excited in these sort of qualitative methods. Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could say a little bit more about those, the sort of creative mapping, because I just thought that was fascinating.
2: Yeah. So I guess in terms of how it came about was because I was thinking you have a lot of stuff which is based more in like human geography, social geography, um, particularly like the field of trans geographies, where there's a lot of looking at the lived experience and the kind of embodied knowledges that people have, um, but also how they inform people's kind of experiences of spaces in terms of both, like, uh, euphoria, inclusion, marginalisation, oppression. But then, um, yeah, and so there's kind of, that was one part of it, but then not a lot of research necessarily does the two things together, where it's then looking at that lived experiences of space and place and also looking at the kind of policy that's going on so i really wanted with my research to do both of those things and so that's why i also do a kind of a discourse analysis of uh policy and that's the kind of to bring the two together so on the one hand looking at how stuff um is how planning is functioning in terms of like actually the the material practices and everyday kind of practices of planners um, and those forms of inclusion and at the same time um looking at those lived experiences and I guess that it's kind of quite difficult then trying to bring them together because there's kind of it's like two different little worlds mm-hmm. um, but that's kind of what I want to do with the research and the the creative mapping sessions um, they really they had quite a roller coaster of development in the sense of I uh, developed these kind of uh creative workshops that would be a kind of set of three workshops um which the same kind of um participants would uh attend in each one it was a development from the kind of starting with forms of body mapping and storyboarding uh to start with the the geographies closest in mm-hmm. as I think uh Robin Longhurst said it where you start with the kind of the bodies um in space but also those kind of personal narratives and then building to then are over the sessions to those kind of more spatialized experiences, um, particularly at the city wide level, because I guess that's what I'm kind of particularly very interested in. But it feels like a, quite a leap to ask people to necessarily just go, what are your experiences of the whole city? And like, um, and so it felt like a sort of a, a certain development to, to get there um, through the creative mapping sessions. Um, but then COVID did disrupt <laughs> the uh, what I was planning to do, so there was a lot of then alteration, and so I'd, half of the research became the kind of two online sessions um, instead of a group setting, kind of uh, one-on-one. Um, but that seemed to work really well, where there was a kind of a week or two weeks in between each session and then setting a little bit of a homework task um, as well. Uh, and that kind of it had enough flexibility, I think, that it, it really worked well for everyone and also got some really good little kind of uh, visual representations through the making of either the storyboards or, or the kind of city maps.
1: Wow. So there was sort of one session that was more focused on body mapping and then a week or two later, they would um, people would be mapping the city.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's like storyboards or body maps or or the option to do neither, which some people um one, one partic- participant it was uh it just didn't work with how they kind of you know how, how their brain worked in terms of how they think about and how they talk about their own experience so it's clear the kind of that's where the creative method was maybe getting in the way um so we just like don't worry we don't have to do that and we just had a really great conversation from a few notes uh, um that they had made before the session uh but then the kind of the next session of the the Making a city-wide map, they really just they took to, and it is really interesting seeing that difference of how how yeah different people take to different methods um, more easily. So it's kind of having that flexibility
1: built in. Yeah, no, that's that's really important as well. So you're not excluding people, isn't it? And you're they're able to participate.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Mm -hmm. So you must have got some really exciting data as well, and quite quite challenging to analyse that data as well. You to the transcripts and that. The recording
2: yeah exactly so i had the the transcripts um from the sessions uh and alongside the kind of uh the actual visual representations themselves and most of the transcripts were kind of like a, a description um by the person who made it um of their kind of what the representation meant to them so it was i guess less about me kind of doing a necessarily like a in-depth visual kind of analysis of the map so much but kind of focusing um firstly on the kind of the meaning uh that people had and how they spoke about their own experiences and then that was like the first stage of analysis just kind of a thematic analysis uh and then the second stage was then really kind of thinking okay what do all these experiences mean for planning (laughs) um or like or planning theory in practice as a kind of like I guess a large kind of uh like both the academic arguments and literature but also like the the professional kind of practitioners and what what it might uh mean um for them and that's where I kind of got really then thinking about the idea of trans infrastructures as a way that's a, a bridging concept between the kind of lived experience um of people and the kind of the complexity of people's lived experience and the kind of as a way to articulate it into planning that perhaps is more more useful um in in my eyes than perhaps how it's being done at the moment and where there's often a certain kind of flattening and a focus towards certain things or needs which are the most amenable to how planning thinks and ways of doing things currently within planning um and the kind of the idea of trans infrastructure builds on a few academics in the literature who talk about queer infrastructure as well, which is particularly um, the work of uh, Ben Kempkin and Lo Marshall, where they researched kind of queer nightlife uh, venues, So LGBTQ plus uh, nightlife venues um, in London and the kind of those spaces as a real kind of part of the social fabric. Um, or LGBTQ plus people in the capital um, and beyond. And so it's kind of maybe trying to uh, take that concept on, but expanding it beyond the kind of the, just the kind of more of the nightlife venues and then thinking about all the kind of multiple dimensions um, of the built environment and, and the social environment that kind of enable and constrain trans lives. And that's how I'm trying to then think through this idea of trans infrastructures.
1: Wow. So can you sort of give us some sort of specific example or examples of what you would see as trans infrastructures in in your data?
2: Yeah, that's a very good question and one of the most tricky ones. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where I'm kind of at as well with my write-up sure. at the moment. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. like, oh. <laughs> Any
1: kind of provisional, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> but I think it's it's a difficult one because I guess when you're trying to like have an expansive concept as a kind of including quite a lot of different, uh, aspects, which aren't traditionally maybe being thought of as planning concerns or Mm. the concerns of, of planning. Um, and so for instance, one of the things which is then kind of clearly came up in my data is something like housing. Mm. And it's kind of recognized before that trans people, um, have more precarious kind of, uh, experiences of housing because of relationships to like employment and transitioning and also because of like discrimination and precarity around kind of, uh, the home and finding kind of affirmative and affordable housing, uh, particularly in in Brighton Hove can be a very, uh, big issue, less than easy. And so thinking of something like housing, not just as like a specifically kind of, uh, I guess thinking of through housing as like part of like a infrastructure for trans people that really enables or constrains their ability to inhabit the city of Brighton Hove. Um, and it's something which leads to displacement in the sense of like living uh, outside of the city. So within the surrounding area where there is more, uh, more affordable housing or, and being able to then just uh, visit it. But there's a kind of a desire to live within the city. And that came up in people's experiences where they also had experienced discrimination in their housing environment um, within Brighton Hove. And then that had led to them kind of being uh, displaced out of the city uh, again. And either they've been commuting in for their social um, activities or, or studies. And so it's kind of like, clearly like one kind of aspect where there's this real kind of um is it centripetal force <laughs> there's like a, a kind yeah. of a, a displacing effect um that can happen and in previous research uh they looked at how the kind of medical geographies that kind of displaced trans people from Brighton for instance to the gender identity clinics mm. in London and so this was kind of like highlighting that different aspect uh that hadn't been looked at before And I guess that's related to the fact that then people move to Brighton, particularly for um, like their experience around their gender and their sexuality. And, you know, not everyone does. Like some people might be queer and just move here for the sake of a a job or something as well. Um, But it's kind of, it's become something of like uh, the place to go to. Um, And it has been historically for quite a long time for, uh trans people um whether that's because like in the the brighton r story project which is a queer history project said in the kind of 1970s it was recommended that if you're uh transitioning that you move to brighton for the kind of the the two years you needed to live in your uh chosen gender as the phrase was i think at the time uh before being able to um uh, have medical uh, access to medical transition And people's narratives still come through where they're still moving here, particularly for the kind of uh, the idea of it being more trans inclusive. Um, And that came up in the in the data. People do experience it as a space of like relative comfort or the most comfortable (laughs) they have ever felt. That's really facilitated by this kind of network of trans support services that do exist um, within the city uh which enable people um to get the kind of the 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 knowledge to be able to navigate structures whether they're healthcare or housing or otherwise but to help facilitate um, and enable people access to these services and those are really kind of key kind of development of those knowledge over time to be able to help people to do that and that's then it, it really does inform people's experiences of the city as a as of being able to have a greater kind of access to the city and the range of services and feeling also just less isolated um, when dealing with these, these issues. And that's not something that's unique to Brighton & Hove. Of course, there's like other places with um, other services and stuff, but it still feels that it's something that people who move here really experience as a, as a key change. And so there's something around people wanting to move to Brighton & Hove in order to be able to have access to a range of services and also a range of uh, trans-specific support services um, and a better quality of life, whether that's just moving around the streets and public space. Uh, And at the same time, you've got uh, kind of certain dynamics within the city, such as housing, which are kind of forcing and trying to um, displacing people outside of the city. So you've got this push and pull tension. And I think the idea with kind of, taking on trans infrastructures as a way to facilitate and increase the livability of trans people's lives, um, in the city is a way that hopefully, uh, policy could take on and enable, uh, the kind of the articulation of, of trans needs in a way that really does kind of increase livability rather than perhaps sometimes, for instance, uh, where often in policy, it can come up as a bit of a audit check where there's a kind of making sure there's no further discriminatory effects but not necessarily seeking to really decrease those differential power relations that exist between social groups.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. no, that is, that's really, <laughs> sounds really interesting and important. And presumably if people are sort of pushed out, then potentially they lose access to those community links. Do they feel isolated potentially if they're not in the city where they hoped they might be?
2: Yeah, and and that can be kind of just... Uh, kind of across a range of different services that you might not normally expect as well. So, for instance, one participant spoke about how when they needed to see a a chiropractor, they specifically came to a chiropractor based in Brighton. um, And they said, if you know, in the future when they need to access a chiropractor, they will access one in Brighton. Because even if they're not queer or trans themselves, they're just much more likely to be queer or trans inclusive. Um, which isn't necessarily, of course, true for all chiropractors <laughs> in Brighton. Um, but they said that they'd specifically had experiences uh, in in the town further on down the coast where they lived, where that they hadn't had an affirmative experience and it had been a, a very poor experience of accessing those services.
1: Yeah, and I suppose the importance you're talking as well about the sort of community embodied knowledge and the the sort of links and the way that, um, yeah, people would connect up to to other people who know about those services and so on. So, yeah, it's not just the services, it's sort of the knowledge, the community knowledge. So with the infrastructures also include sort of organisations and networks as as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. Because you've got a few kind of quite long established now, like organisations that are trans-specific or trans-inclusive and and wide LGBTQ um, charities and NGOs. And that does form a particular kind of like uh, support ecosystem within Brighton Hove, which which being able to access can really make changes in people's experiences. Having that kind of institutional, I guess it's like having a certain institutionalization of then that knowledge in order to be able to help people and the continuity of that, that's something that's kind of quite, I guess, specific and i guess it is particularly important because of the lack of sustained like uh trans spaces like i I guess a lot of trans spaces often or trans focus spaces tend to be very temporal Mm. um where that's something like trans pride in the city uh which you know is is a kind of a phenomenal event that's been going for probably 10th year in 2023 and that's kind of really important to the city and, and a kind of uh, important for people's experiences of the city but it's also demonstrates a kind of there's a fragility and a vulnerability often to trans spaces because they are so um temporal and having those kind of those support services as a more can, kind of consistent source of knowledge
1: yeah
2: um, is really kind of uh, important yeah in that context
1: yeah and just sort of returning to the, the data as well did you find some sort of were there some interesting differences between people or were the commonalities more important what kind of things came out
2: in terms of uh people's lived experiences they were very um very varied mm-hmm. and very i guess it, it was kind of complicated in how they related to each other so for instance there was one of the key aspects to inform people's sense of comfort in a, in a place um, was also their uh, kind of biography. So their previous experiences of other places or similar spaces. Um, So for instance, one participant spoke about how they felt very unsafe um, in housing estates. And that was informed, particularly because they grew up on a housing estate that then they had to leave um, because of uh, persistent kind of uh, experiences of discrimination and oppression and so that kind of carries with them and that informs their kind of experiences still in those kind of those places in the city they may feel safer or not and that's kind of that comes out in that first phase of analysis where you really look at just kind of people's embodied experiences of spaces um, because they're kind of very varied and you kind of Start to think, oh, well, what can this ever possibly mean for trying to have like a, a implications for planning because there's a certain generalization, a certain standardization. And that's where those kind of things um, are harder to necessarily uh, articulate or wouldn't be so relevant. I guess there was like one of the perhaps unsurprising things uh, coming out of that was people's experiences were kind of quite some patterns coming through in the data in terms of spaces that were avoided and whether that was um, nighttime spaces and and places after dark, which is kind of to be expected for people who suffer uh, discrimination, oppression around like kind of forms of gender-based violence, but also the kind of avoidance of uh, busier spaces um, during the summer. And the kind of Brighton City Centre and the kind of the differences around the kind of seasonality um, of of the city as well. And those experiences come from what it means, the crowds and how people experience crowds, um, particularly that that sense of whether um, people who come from outside Brighton might not be engaging in in the city in the same way. And so there's those differences that kind of uh, or similarities that come up. But there was also the kind of the uniqueness of different people's experiences. There was one really nice kind of experience where there were different um, pockets of comfort or pockets of affirmation, which people spoke about. And those were, for instance, there was one where one uh, participant spoke about how there was the um, nudist beach and they experienced that, particularly like in the summer where going there with friends was experienced as a space of affirmation. And and there's a really nice kind of little narrative around like them floating in the water and experience a comfort within themselves and their body, but also that being then kind of witnessed um, in an affirming way. And there's a lot coming up around that kind of the differences in the data and how the kind of both how people's perception of others um but also how those gazes and that sense of like having an affirmative maybe it's like a non-cisgender based gaze of their themselves and their body and being read in certain ways versus a sense of the kind of a much more what can be experienced as a more surveilling gaze what's called uh sometimes referred to as a a scopic regime (laughs) where there's kind of like a, a certain kind of Depending on how bodies are being read and how they're being interpreted, but also the kind of the, the discourses and and the cultural discourses that are occurring, um, and that kind of informs a very specific sense of then people's um, different experiences across time and space. Yeah, sorry, that was rambly No, <laughs> no,
1: it's so interesting, and it's so yeah, just the. I'm trying not to so too rich.
2: much <laughs> scopic regimes, <laughs> but
1: no, that's great. You you explained it, and um, um, and and the seasonality is just fascinating as well. I mean, like on a day like today in December, it's so different from what it's going to be like in June or July, and the implications that has for who's watching and how people feel.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think generally people experience Brighton. hope are oh, it's often we talked about in a way where there's there's the summer city, and then there's Brighton over the rest of the year. Mm -hmm. And it just feels like a very different place. Um, And that did come up in a few people's experiences as well in relation to um, clothing and stuff, because for some people, there was the real sense of, like, being able to be covered up and made them feel more comfortable in their body and how they were being read. And that becomes more difficult during uh, summer months. And so then that felt like there was a bit more uh, experiences um, of what typically might be called dysphoria uh f- mm. for those participants between their body because also um the nature of like how they're having to present because of the heat and then how they might be read mm. um as well
1: wow and did you um sort of find stuff that particularly surprised you in that i mean the, the in, in those in those data was, was this, were the things that you sort of thought oh i'd never i never thought i'd find that
0: <laughs> mm.
2: i guess in terms of Things that surprised me with my findings—it's less to do with the the kind of the creative mapping mm-hmm. uh, sessions, but in terms of the for the the policy um, analysis, how I how I thought about it and writing it up is there's a kind of telling different stories of trans or LGBTQ um, in, in policy over kind of quite a last fifteen years of of planning in Brighton the Hove, and there was some aspects which were quite um where i'm kind of just tracing how maybe needs from lgbtq specific consultation has arrived and how that kind of gets articulated but often there was a kind of as a moving in and out of policy where something is a becomes a presence and then it disappears Mm -hmm. and i think that's something specific or it's something that comes up quite frequently in a looking at gender and sexuality and and lgbtq um, in policy where the kind of often it's articulated as as a form of absence Uh, and this this is talked about in some of the literature as like an absence is a policy action in itself and so it's trying to understand how these things kind of can come in and arise and then disappear and i had a kind of quite a digging into like old uh, policies and council minutes. Um, and because there was uh, a kind of an LGBT specific uh, consultation that the council did all the way back in around 2006, where they looked at uh, or where they did two specific sessions with LGBT uh, residents um, or people who work in Brighton Hove, um, and Hove and. For planning purposes in the drawing up of the local plan, and one of the kind of uh, parts that was articulated sometimes, or, or was articulated through um, the second session in particular, which was like a kind of community consultation, was around uh, seeking a recognition of the of the gay village or the St James Street area, Kemp Town, mm-hmm. differently called, um, and recognizing that in policy as a kind of a form of like a cultural. Uh, of cultural importance uh, to the city and this did get then articulated when it was added into the local plan um, by a a councillor and then that got put in and then the local plan was sent off for examination it was then had to be withdrawn because of the introduction of the the localism act in 2011 and so the plan was withdrawn, and then it kind of got revised, and what became um, what is now City Plan Part One. But in that process of the kind of the withdrawal and the revision, uh, a lot of things stayed the same, but the Gay Village policy disappeared. And so it's one of those frustrating things where I've I I've had uh, talked with and through interviews um, with plans, and there's nothing. That anyone can point me to of the reason why and any kind of like um, paperwork that's saying why something was taken out because often it's like there's a a paper trace for how things are put in and revisions that become in but for how something gets taken out it's a bit harder Um, and so that's something where there's the kind of the gay village is um, articulated into policy and then for some reason it, it gets articulated out and it's kind of that frustrating absence <laughs> um and that was something that was kind of surprising when i hit upon it it was like uh felt like an investigative journalist <laughs> I think yeah <laughs> yeah uh,
1: and why, why do you think it Mr. <laughs> it's
2: tough to say because i think there's a lot of different there are different lines of argumentation at the time um about why something should be considered or not um and recognition of something like that as a form of a uh, cultural uh of cultural importance uh for the city um and i think i just find it generally quite surprising that there isn't uh that that never was fully articulated um as to why exactly i think i can't really mm. speculate mm-hmm. i so, think any of my my thoughts feel like they're my insider gossip and i don't know if yeah. it, i can't um pin it down <laughs>
1: Wow. So it'd be interesting, actually, to know a bit more about the sort of planning side of the research as well. So you've done interviews with planners and you've done sort of um, analysis, thematic discourse analysis of planning documents. So yeah. A bit more about.
2: So uh, I guess it kind of started with and kind of an open ended. I did a kind of helicopter interviews to begin with, where it was just having a few uh, kind of overviews um, with a, a couple of planning practitioners to just get a sense of how gender quite broadly is being articulated but then specifically for then my kind of focus how then is trans being articulated and that led to um, a couple of focuses really in terms of trans being articulated into policy and one of those was through the kind of form of uh, health and equality impact assessments Mm -hmm. and so that's a yeah in terms of like impact assessment uh in terms of equality impact assessments, because of the Equality Act 2010, uh, trans is a or gender reassignment is a protected characteristic, and so therefore there's a kind of a uh, um, you have to demonstrate your due regard um, for trans in the kind of development of new policy, and so when you're developing, for instance, in planning your new local plan, um, you need to demonstrate your due regard. Um, for a whole range of protected characteristics and and trans is one of them so I just kind of followed up on how that is being articulated and how um, that is um, being thought about Um, because one of the things that came up in the kind of looking at the literature and there's some reports um, particularly by the town and country planning association they did a nice little bit of research on quality impact assessments within planning departments in London um, and looking at how those how those were done. And there's a kind of a real diversity and varied kind of forms of how they could be done, but also the depth of detail they might go into. But there was nothing that really said about how trans specifically is being articulated. Now we have this new kind of legal, legal setup with the Equality Act. There was no research saying how is trans being articulated. And so that's where I did a kind of a few interviews with um, practitioners Um, planning practitioners in order to understand how trans is being uh, articulated and on the whole what I kind of found is that the the health and qualities impact assessments they they are a really beneficial process for the development of the local plan Um, and it's a really good point of being able to include and think about a range of differing groups and needs um, and particularly marginalized groups such as LGBTQ populations um however how trans was kind of being articulated because of the nature of the the uh, actual structure of the impact assessment where it's kind of is an iterative process but it's kind of looking at policy and it's doing a bit of an equalities audit check on are those policies going to have like particularly um, negative consequences Um, for particular groups and so to try to um, prevent that from happening or if there's going to be particular opportunities that can be maximized however it's kind of the whole structure and it's formed around the sense of the the policy as it is being developed and so it's not necessarily actually articulating how to um, it's not articulating how can trans livability of the city be increased And that's a kind of a a differing question. So while that was the kind of the major and concrete way that trans was being articulated into planning policy, it was only doing so much. Uh, And it was kind of perhaps limited in the kind of uh, the ways that it could change or transform planning policy to be uh, more inclusive uh, for trans people. Um, And that kind of also goes for a range of different social groupings as well.
1: And what do you think... um... What, what do you how do you think planning could change or should change to be be more inclusive To, to yeah do more on trans livability improving trans livability and not just no detrimental impact or whatever yeah i i guess
2: it's it's difficult because for instance my research really focuses on the the, the local level so it focuses on brighton and ho and as a, as a local um authority and as anyone knows who works within planning there's certain like limitations and restrictions that come within the fact that within the english planning setup there are there's a lot of centralization and there's a lot of um ways in which central government kind of uh regulates and um sets the parameters for what can or cannot be done um and so i think there's a kind of um, yeah, I wouldn't want to put this all on <laughs> local planners as like the burden for how to, how things can change, and goodness knows the planning policy kind of landscape is constantly in flux and it's constantly in changing and it feels like you're just trying to keep up with what what is the now the new <laughs> um the new policies, but I think for me, what i've got what I like to think about is I guess it's kind of like the as it stands, there's limitations for the imagination for what planning should be doing or could be doing and it's then kind of reconceptualizing that kind of uh, planning imagination so instead of it being how to orient trans needs to make them amenable for planning it's more thinking about how can planning be oriented around marginalized groups needs and how best to then be articulating them whereas at the moment it feels like engaging with the planning system you're very much into the ways of doing and the ways of thinking of planning which really uh kind of channels it and focuses things into certain arenas and certain ways um and so it's kind of to try to maybe get away from that and to reconceptualize what can be done and the scope of planning um which is perhaps a much bigger question than obviously just one authority um, but I think it's what's needed in order to have a kind of a planning practice that is a focus around increasing livability for inhabitants of a city and not just increasing forms of engagement or inclusion within how planning is as is at the moment.
1: Yes, yes. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And it's quite a, yeah, a, a radical vision. Are there, I mean, there may not be, but are there any examples of places outside of England where you think, oh, they're doing something a bit more like that mm. at all? Or <laughs>
2: like trans-Pacific or
1: if possible but if not if it's other marginalized groups I guess that would be count as good you know good examples I suppose
2: any kind of it comes almost back to like the ways of governing and democratic practices um and so how things are whether things are you know really kind of forms of you know community participation or you know it's that kind of going back to the classic arnstein's ladder of participation um, and different varieties of uh people's actually being able to have input to a process and what are they given kind of ability to change or not
1: yeah and i guess having chosen this as a case study shows up the limitations of the english system as well because presumably if it were going to work well anywhere, then here would be the kind of place it might work better,
2: I think. Yeah, and I guess that was a, a kind of a major impetus for the kind of focusing on Brighton & Hove was because there is a history since the kind of the... Um, there was some great work by Kath Brown, um, my supervisor Jason Lim, around kind of LGBTQ experiences of the city and policy and activism, and that featured around 2010, 2013, Um, But since then, there's been a huge amount of change in terms of, like, trans inclusion work. Mm -hmm. So Brighton Hove did a trans needs assessment in 2015, um, which was kind of a groundbreaking needs assessment for any kind of municipal authority within Mm -hmm. England at the time. And also there's the longer history of Brighton Hove has been one of those kind of few uh, municipal authorities that for a long time has been uh, better at articulating LGBTQ. Um, However, that's also been... all. Often that dynamic has been one of activism um, or activists pushing and forcing it to be on the agenda from the outside. And so it's not a, like a necessarily a clean <laughs> and easy kind of relationship or progression. And so that was a sense of like, okay, over the last decade, that active trans inclusion work that's happened within Brighton Ho, but has that affected planning? And how, for instance, because planning is its own thing it's its own kind of you know it's what one, one branch of many within local government um and so has that been shaped um by those efforts and where particularly maybe needs have been identified um but they haven't been articulated into planning and so for instance that was another branch of the policy analysis where i looked at how um certain needs were identified in the trans needs assessment but they were never articulated into a planning policy document um, until I put them into a consultation process uh, and then it became articulated by there's a sense of like again the role and particularly the role of advocates and the role of people having to push for these things and joining up those dots and that's where you kind of really have the a role of someone who's a specialist um, to be able to put those things together and that's something which has been found within previous kind of LGBTQ municipal policy research going back for you know last 30 years it's the kind of those those key people um who take kind of uh, particular advocacy on on certain issues um but obviously it means they're channeled into certain ways because it's you know uh relying on certain people to do that yeah
1: Oh, that's that's very reminiscent of some of the things I've found in active travel research and those mm-hmm. the reliance on those people and the fact that yeah, if those people leave or they're not there anymore, suddenly the whole pro everything becomes very fragile, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. And that's something I guess looking at local government in particular, but it's probably true for a range of different kind of institutions where there it feels like there's often a lack of institutional memory or institutional mm-hmm. learning. Um because looking at equalities policies particularly around LGBT with a focus on on, on trans over the last 20-30 years you get a sense of things coming up again and again and these kind of iterative uh, circles and so I guess it's that trying to rupture this idea of a sustained linear development and it perhaps it's it's much more a kind of a a non-sustained cyclical kind of focus where often there's a a coalescing of uh certain um it's what Alison Bain and Julie Podmore call coalitional moments, where you have these coming together of certain groups and people in government to then produce um those kind of moments of change where things might get articulated into policy, which is of course a limited sense of change anyway, but those things kind of happen. But often, particularly, you know, there's a sense of exhaustion or like for activists there's you know, they can only sustain a certain level of like there's a sense of activist burnout um Mm. where also those groupings and partnerships community partnerships um only can be sustained for a certain level of time um because they rely on certain uh often a certain kind of core group of people over time as well and so then when they kind of they arise they might they um, contribute to some change but then they kind of dissipate and so that's where you can kind of over time see a certain like Moving again or leaning towards certain ways where then things aren't being articulated and that's kind of a uh, I guess where you can say there's being a reaffirmation of uh, uh normativities around whether that's heteronormativities or cisgender normativities or just you know ways that uh, reinforce not having to think about certain forms of social difference mm-hmm.
1: yeah. yeah 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 and how do you you know you in terms of your research is it does it do you see it as sort of having this action research or whatever element where you're sort of intervening in a policy debate as well as, you know, with, um yeah, researching them?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I guess I've never thought I never like solidly set my research within action research kind of uh paradigm or methodology, but I definitely have a sense of like wanting to intervene in a way um which is producing like some kind of material like effects through the actual um, research, but at the same time isn't like just focused on making those pragmatic kind of those small amenable recommendations. And that kind of then what can become quite a a flattening to produce uh, kind of policy recommendations. That always feels like such a loaded term, policy recommendations, where it's kind of like, How can we make policy a bit better but not have to really substantially change it or transform how we're thinking about it? And so I guess it's trying to keep that tension uh, between actually seeking to have a more radical transformative change and that being the kind of the the goal overall um, and at the same time recognizing the inherent limitations of a small piece of research and the effects that obviously come with that uh, and ability to do those things.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. You're one person. It's a, yeah. it's a small piece of research. It's actually something else I wanted to ask you is, um, I mean, you seem to have fitted in an awful lot and an awful lot of different methods and so on. But, um, you know, if, in, it sort of, if, if you had unlimited resources, what kind of things mm. would you have liked to have done as well?
2: I guess if there was unlimited resources in particular, I think what I would have liked to have done is had much more kind of, uh paid facilitators to help run then a wider set of workshops so in terms of also how to do it to scale it up that would be one key thing because um, um all of my participants I only spoke to um I spoke to 10 trans participants um by, uh, multiple times um so it's kind of like a very focused rich qualitative methods but all of my participants were white um and so that obviously informs and affects the kind of those experiences and and how whiteness functions as a kind of uh, can be considered as a kind of axis of sameness. So it helps facilitate those experiences of relative comfort in a place like Brighton and Hove. And that's something where also my own positionality, of course, uh, as a white person informs and affects the research. And so, for instance, the best way um, in order to be able to facilitate and run it would be to be able to have uh, creative workshop spaces, which are, run and designed by and for QTPOC or LGBTQ um, people of colour to kind of produce creative mapping sessions, but in a way that isn't then uh, informed by my sense and my desires and my research goals, because I think that would produce a different... um, That's the kind of thing where I think if you were to take on these kind of those methods, you do get those kind of self-selecting or reinforcing those certain groups or perhaps more dominant.
1: No, that, that's, I mean, talking about, yeah, intersectionality and diversity among participants. So did you have, um, were there other things as well um, that, that you would like to have had more diversity? And, I mean, did you, in terms of disability perhaps? What?
2: Um, there quite a few participants had a range of both uh, differing, like, uh, disabilities, neurodiversities, um, this, like, kind of a range of physical or mental, like, different capacities and looking at that and how that informs people's uh, experiences. And for instance, that came up a couple of times, particularly around people who um, had the intersections of disability and and their transness and how that kind of affected sometimes their experiences of uh, trans spaces or spaces that should be trans-focused or trans-affirming kind of spaces and how they... um, could be produced as exclusion, excluding again um, towards that individual because of those kind of intersections. So one person spoke about kind of an experience they had um, within an event that was a trans-focused event within the city, um, but how that was then, um, how they'd experienced like a level of uh, then discrimination when trying to access the disabled toilet because the and the security personnel were not reading them as disabled. And so, therefore, they were then denying them access. And then this produced a kind of a conflict and they ended up having to leave the event um, in some distress. And so there's those kind of ways in which you can kind of have like forms of affirmation inclusion along different forms of social difference or different lines of the intersections as human beings we, we have. And it needs to, you know, have all of those things uh, or you need to kind of consider all of those things together and not just separate those out because that's not how people's (laughs) lives uh, function as well. And so that's where I think something with my research where I'm kind of also aware of suggesting perhaps like the idea of trans infrastructure and how that plays out. It's also thinking about, you know, how to articulate all the forms of social difference in perhaps a more meaningful way that then is not just... Kind of considering it in a more generalised um, or flattening sense of certain needs, and that being attributed or to groups of people.
1: How did you um, how did you recruit your your um, sample of participants?
2: I everyone was uh, an inhabitant, which meant they either lived or they lived nearby, or they like kind of worked, socialised um, in in the city, and that was kind of a recognition of the kind of uh, how people would be wanting to move to Brighton Home perhaps could actually live within the bounds of it. And I recruited people primarily through two means, which was um, sending, sending out adverts with local uh, LGBTQ or trans-specific organisations and also through my own personal networks and kind of a bit of a snowball sampling. Uh, and those were the two main forms of recruitment.
1: Did they, I was interested also, did you have... Um, a... Was the age diversity or did you did
2: you have mostly younger or middle aged or... so the, in terms of the range I, I people the youngest person um was early twenties and then the oldest person was uh late forties and so there was a definite sense of um the ages were also um you know i'm thirty one so there was a sense of like those ages were formed around perhaps like a kind of a certain distance from my own my own age as well, so it wasn't um such a huge range particularly for because i was only ever talking to adults but there was like a definite um a group that was missing was older um trans people so anyone 50 and above and particularly because of then those differing needs around access to different services and care and um, perhaps also then different uh kind of uh i guess those kind of life stages producing different kind of needs or desires for what they'd like to see in the city, which um, came up in, the, for instance, and in some people spoke about they're really planning for the future and talking about, you know, um, what it might mean to have, like, uh, queer and trans-inclusive forms of, like, ageing and retirement, but there was no one experiencing that um, in the terms of lived experience at the moment.
1: Sure. Lots of scope for future research. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um... I wondered, did you want to say any more actually about these? So we talked to, um, about various of the methods, but the, you were mentioning using um, discourse analysis. So I just wondered if you wanted to say any more about that at yeah. all, what kind of discourse analysis you were doing.
2: Yeah, so there's when I started, I found out there's many different types of discourse analysis and it kind of hurt my head trying to understand what form and what it was that I was doing. And then I really I came upon the work of Carol Batchy, who's a political scientist, Um Based in Australia, and her work really comes from a tradition of Foucauldian discourse analysis, where she looks at um, problematizations and how things are problematized into policy. And I found that really kind of productive and useful. And she used a lot of example uh, to do with gender, but particularly in that kind of a more uh, focusing, I guess, on a more classic binary uh, formation of gender, or focusing on yeah, not focusing on trans in particular. And so when I was kind of trying to trace these narratives and these stories in policy, it was also using this method of like how things come to be problematized and where and when uh, and why not at other points. And I found that really useful because also part of that is a kind of feminist reflexivity. So she, Carol Bacci, has this kind of um, what's the problem represented to be in these few little uh, kind of steps on how you can go about doing it. And I kind of used that as a to inform it uh my process but i didn't follow it to the kind of <laughs> to the to the t is that the right? <laughs> yeah um and yeah and so the kind of the final or one of the steps as well is applying to all those questions that you might apply to policy to interrogate how things become and how they arise and feature in policy and particularly also the assumptions underpinning it and then you're also applying that to your own to yourself and your own research um and that was kind of very useful for them thinking about the difference between where planning comes at trying to articulate social difference or how planning is seeking to articulate trans and then what my kind of desires and my kind of ambitions for like where i'm starting at and where i might kind of um see planning going
1: elsewhere and i suppose in link to when when you were talking about sort of the, um, you know, planning being this thing that, um, you know, um, talking about translivability had to fit into, that it was like that way around. I suppose thinking about something as a planning problem as well sort of presupposes it being soluble within planning terms in a sense. So something gets constructed as a planning problem, it's already been.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's that yeah. real sense of how, uh, what becomes material consideration is so mm. often like the term within planning, particularly the decisions on the ground and the, the kind of, Local level, like what is a material consideration in the form formation of both policy, but also like a particular development. And often there's kind of the material consideration features around kind of environmental uh, or economic issues. Um, But how those social issues and that part of like kind of economic sustainability, or of how that part of sustainable development, that kind of triad of environmental, social, economic particularly it feels that social often gets uh, less of a look-in because there's that thicker, stickier kind of issue and how to articulate it. Yeah, so how that kind of, like, how then forms of social difference were being articulated, but also how, how, I guess, how the kind of predominant way that trans was being articulated was through the lens of equalities and equalities work, and that's something also particular to maybe the last kind of, 10 20 years within um, local governance about the kind of institutionalization um, and modernization processes that formed like kind of particular like uh formation of uh, qualities as a practice um, and how to think about things um which is very beneficial in some ways but also perhaps um kind of uh, categorizes and constrains the ability uh or kind of it channels I guess sometimes it can then mean that when things are articulated in the qualities issue, they get then taken up and understood and kind of uh, implemented within certain ways, which maybe means that more wider transformative ways that things could be included are kind of not thought about.
1: No, that, that that makes a lot of sense yeah in the, in the equalities channels and you know in the at it's worst it could just be a tick box no we're not affecting this group detrimentally but even when it's better it's still within those limits isn't it yeah.
2: yeah and there's a certain it there's a sense of how things are articulated within inequalities that then means you have to give kind of a equal consideration to all the different groupings and not then giving an unfair privileging of any mm-hmm. certain group within that which I think is a maybe a, a tricky way of thinking about it because it's kind of thinking, uh, often it becomes like a kind of a, it's thinking about different forms of equalities, groupings, whether that's around something like gender, race, sexuality, ethnicity, or they kind of, it's, it's thinking about these things in a more competitive way. And so mm-hmm. they're not giving a particular privileging to certain groups. Um, instead of coming at it from the issue, perhaps of like power differentials and, and, existing marginalization and ways that can overcome that again to kind of focus on increasing people's experiences and livability rather than just kind of like making sure every group has been considered in some way
1: Well yes yeah, and so many people have multiple identities as mm. well so, yeah. yeah exactly yeah mm. so i'm wondering <laughs> if there's stuff you wanted to say that you haven't had chance to i guess there's
2: only one thing from my notes which hasn't I haven't said which is thinking about how maybe the choice of methods for research but also whether that's then for like engaging in forms of engagement and consultation um, around planning but how that kind of shapes and informs the knowledges that can be produced so there's the kind of like methods really taking it as a choice of like Thinking through like the methods you choose as a kind of the ethical implications of how they mediate yourself between both yourself and your research and the participants, but also the forms of like knowledge that can be produced. And one of the, the main things was really with the, the two parts of the research, one was kind of like using methods to do that critical uh, engagement with planning policy to then understand how planning orients things towards its ways of knowing and doing. And then the other way around was how to have methods which enable a kind of production of knowledges oriented around trans people's lives in order to then think about how planning can be better oriented when you start at lived experiences of trans people rather than kind of like a, an additional endpoint to be considered later on.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I guess in thinking through uh, trans infrastructures, there's a nice little quote Carabachi uses from, I think it's from Deleuze, it's kind of, Carol Batchy said, echoing the words of Deleuze, how concepts are like bricks and you can either use them to build a wall or chuck them through a window. And I guess the idea of trans infrastructures, I'm trying to, like, build a better platform from which trans people can throw bricks. And that's my kind of interpretation of it as a kind of a, a productive critique as a concept.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. <laughs> Um, oh, actually, there was one other um, thing that I've been meaning to ask you that I hadn't written down was about when in the RGS um, IVG talk, I seem to remember you were talking about kind of edge of city locations. And mm. I just wondered, I was i was kind of quite intrigued by that part because I like them myself. And I just wondered if you wanted to say anything about that, the role of edge of city locations.
2: Yeah, I guess that was one of the surprising things that came up in the, um, the kind of from the creative mapping was how for some people there was the use and experience of green spaces as uh freeing spaces or associated with ideas of freedom and, and feeling more free and that was kind of also intertwined with the kind of uh in part like uh less of the kind of that that was down to the experience of not being or feeling like being watched or surveilled by other people And so there was the kind of like interesting way that these kind of fringe green spaces and Brighton Hove, you know, it's it's between the South Downs National Park and the sea. And so you've got a kind of uh, surrounded by this little bit of green space at the top and people's in use of those spaces to kind of just feel a bit more freeing and feeling less watched um, and being able to then uh, perhaps forget about some things (laughs) and forget about Yeah, the kind of that that sense of, like, people reading you or you being read around your gender. And I guess that was perhaps unsurprising in some ways because uh, the kind of way that COVID has, a COVID-19 pandemic has changed how we kind of interact with our local surrounding spaces and particularly our green spaces. But it was also kind of the ways in some of the literature kind of privileges the idea of anonymity Uh, within urban space in the city particularly for LGBTQ people um, and city space as a space of anonymity and I guess it kind of it was less that the the more typically urban spaces were those spaces of anonymity and really the spaces of anonymity were those fringe green spaces Um, and I thought that was kind of very interesting as a kind of rural urban non-binary uh space for non-binary people in some oh, very
1: much. it reminds me when i was talking to the people i just met in the actors last night and one of them said oh everybody knows everybody here like in the town
2: <laughs> <laughs> this is both a good and a, a, a bad thing right and depending on uh different networks and yeah particularly when you you find out when you if you're <laughs> within a queer dating scene or something and it turns out everyone's already dated each other
1: <laughs> but um
2: yeah <laughs> there is that sense of the the kind of the people enjoying the smaller compactness uh often uh, of the city and that came up in an, another research project i was involved with with zoe Bowden and nick McGlinn around lgbt uh migration uh mental health to the city that featured as well in terms of how people wanting access to then particularly those you know services we talked about which are often located more centrally um but then also there's different mobilities that people have in order to then um access those and depending which part of the city um but also finding that often you could like a lot of things were a lot closer or like a lot more uh, easier to reach than perhaps uh, yeah coming from other locations particularly London for instance or something
0: is there anything else that
2: you wanted to add? I guess this, the last thing would be around the kind of like, you know, I've come up or like, you know, i have using this idea of trans infrastructure as a kind of bridging concept, but it's really just a, a way to then kind of articulate perhaps and use to more substantially articulate trans people's experiences and voices um, that would be done in a way that has potential kind of usefulness but also like transformative potential for planning but I guess coming out of this research the ways to kind of advice for it would be for whether it's for researchers or, or kind of uh, local planners or planners working at national scale is to kind of just think understand and engage more substantially with trans people's experiences and voices and seek to understand also how perhaps your practice is articulating different forms of social difference, and will the way it's being done actually increase livability for those groups at the moment.
0: Such a lot to think about there from Matt, including how and if planning could be reoriented around lived experiences of trans people, and indeed of everyone, but particularly those who are currently so often marginalised and excluded by policy and planning also lots of great links and references to pick up in the episode notes on our blog, including work by Carol Batchy, who's also written an article with Jennifer Bonham on cycling identities and discourses. Check out our other episodes, which in this strand include Therese Kenner on neurodiversity in the city, and my colleague Dulce Peredroso speaking to quasi Osai, if possible, about researching black men's experiences of cycling in London.